Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. BC here with another episode of Oddcast the Podcast. Today I get the opportunity to sit down with an incredible gentleman, somebody that I know that you're just going to love and adore as much as I did. I get to sit down with John Roberts, the one of the founders of the Global Village Museum in Fort Collins, Colorado. This person has had an incredible life. Uh, 80 years old, he's worked in 19 different countries. He has traveled to 195 different countries. Uh, he was one of the very, very, very first people to join the Peace Corps when John Kennedy established it in 1974 or something like that. Um, and he used his experience and his travels and all of his adoration for the art that he found around the world and brought that back to our community with a mission of bringing the world to Northern Colorado and bringing Northern Colorado to the world. In this interview, we talk about the importance of art, creativity, compassion, and a sense of curiosity, and the importance of storytelling through art in various cultures and communities around the globe. I know that you're going to love this interview. There's a lot of insight and fun stories and before I get into the interview, A World Empowered has a silent auction coming up in August with the theme of outdoors, and I want to send a special thank you and gratitude and a shout out to all of the wonderful organizations and businesses that chose to donate and support this. Um, we've got Shields out off of I-25 and Highway 34, Jack's Outdoor Gear, Elkhorn Fly Shop, Christie Sports, Outpost Sunsport, the Cowpoke Corral, the YMCA, Gear Rage, and Rocky Mountain Adventures Whitewater Rafting. And I've also donated one of my DiChaco original paintings to the silent auction. So these companies have gone above and beyond to support our organization, and I wanted to send a shout out to them before we get into the interview. So here we go. Well, good afternoon. It's my distinct pleasure to make a new friend in John Roberts. You are the founder of Global Village Museum. I'm so one of three or four that all had a piece of this, uh, but I guess I was I was the preeminent founder, perhaps you'd say. Well, it's truly a pleasure to be sitting here in person, looking at you eye to eye to have this conversation. It's an honor and a pleasure to make your acquaintance and be, make a new friend. Thank you. So, Likewise. Thank you for taking the time to do this with me. How about we start off by telling our listeners a little bit about you, your background, your fascinating history, and how you came to start Global Village Museum. Let's start with the background, and then we can get into the other. Interesting. Okay, so I'm a graduate of Fort Collins High School, uh, born and raised here, and uh, got really interested in international things while I was in high school. Uh, I went to Boise State at Colorado University, University of Colorado Boulder, decided that's where I wanted to go to college. So I, I had a scholarship over there, a full-ride scholarship, uh, academic scholarship. And in October of 1960, walking across campus, there was a man with a bodyguard, and it was John Kennedy, and he was campaigning for president. And I stopped and talked to him for about three minutes. Really? And one, one bodyguard, he was just meeting students. Uh, subsequently, I, he was absolutely fascinating. I mean, he was charismatic. Of course. Uh, he got on a, a, a train or a plane and went to the University of Michigan, 
where he talked about an international service corps, which is basically Hubert Humphrey's idea. Uh, and he announced it and it got all kinds of rave and reviews. So uh, when he was elected in, uh, a month later, his first executive order on March the 1st of 1961 was to establish the U.S. Peace Corps. And he, uh, he they, they contacted nine universities, including Colorado State University, to come up with plans to develop a Peace Corps. And the man they asked was Maury, Dr. Maury Albertson, who was an engineer. And his partner was a woman, Holly Berkey, who was a sociologist. They'd worked together on, on a, putting together something like this. So they took the, the reins. Maury Albertson uh, was the father of a girl that I dated in high school, so <laughs> no he t- knew who, who I was. And uh, what so, a small world! Yeah. So uh, he he called me, and we had we played, shared some ideas about about the Peace Corps. And for the most part, what Colorado State University came up with was what the Peace Corps Act showed, and it wasn't approved until the next year in Congress. It operated almost a year on its own as a executive order of Kennedy. And the first training was here in Fort Collins and up in Estes Park. And uh, so I stuck with it. I really was really interested in it. And then he was assassinated, obviously, in November 22nd in 1963. And I graduated in um, May of 64. But right after he was assassinated, I applied for the Peace Corps. I had already been overseas as an international student ambassador in Europe in my sophomore year. And uh, so I already had some interest in, uh, in, in such things, travel, international work. Where did, so, that, where did that, where did from? that wanderlust come from that drive, especially, I mean, I know a lot of people nowadays and with the internet is prolific and lots of people like to travel, but back then it we wasn't as popular. Uh, I had a, prof- a teacher, at, uh, a social studies and history teacher at Fort Collins High School that I admired greatly. And he, he instilled, a very liberal guy, but he instilled um, how, how important it was to be international and, and what excitement came from that. And then when I applied for that uh, thing when I was a sophomore in, high, in college and did that, um, I, I knew I was hooked. And I was uh, taking languages. Um, I took uh, Russian, and I thought I was doing very well, but <laughs> I wasn't. And there was no grade on the side of the door of the, the teacher professor in those days they put your name and your your grade right for right. everybody i had no grade at all when i knocked on the door she looked at her little rolodex and she said uh, i'll give you a c minus if you don't take the second semester <laughs> she paid you not so, to come back so yeah. i switched to french <laughs> well you didn't start off small i hear no, that no. russian is probably the hardest language to learn well so. I, I i didn't learn it i only had one semester of it but i anyway i got in the peace corps and they sent me off to somalia Mm. Uh, to be a uh, teacher of nomadic kids. There were camel herding nomads, and the eldest son of the camel herders would be sent to a boarding school. And some of the I was 21 years old. Some of the students were 25 years old, and some were as young as 12. And it was a, a four-year boarding school. And So uh, your so first tour abroad was in Somalia. Yes, uh, eating, uh, a drink, trying to get down camel's milk that was either sour, if it was cold, or gaggy if it was hot right uh i lost i lost uh 74 pounds in my peace corps service um but i I taught and i love teaching it turned out i like the teaching so then i came back and went to law school international law in washington dc and i decided i didn't want to do that after a year so i was ready to 
do something else, but the draft boards were sending people to Vietnam at the time. Okay. This was in 1967. Mm -hmm. So I walked into the Department of State, and they were hiring gun fodder people to go to Vietnam to do work in the field. So I passed a good uh, language aptitude test, and, and they gave me a, a year of Vietnamese at the Foreign Service Institute, and I went to Vietnam in 1968 during the war, and I was there for four years. With what branch? With the State Department. Okay. So not in the not army? The, or, no, not okay. military. In the nice. State Department. Civilian. Very nice. And uh, so it was good. And from there, I, that was the launch of my international foreign service career. And subsequently, I worked in, uh, in 19 countries, and I retired in 1998 and came back to Fort Collins and was asked to teach international studies at Colorado State, which I've done. And I'm still teaching continuing education. So and uh, doing all this time, I had all this stuff. And uh, I wanted to share it, but I didn't really want people wandering through my house. So I thought. You mean all the things that you acquired yes, in all of your yes, travels? I, I like art. I'm curious. Right. I like culture. And it's all, I collected all this stuff. So I've got a room here in this museum. And we have a, this is an international, this is the only international museum in the States, by the way. I did not the, know that. The Global Village Museum of Arts and Cultures. But with others, a couple of others, we decided we needed to have a place to, to, uh, display our things and share with the with the community uh, what it's like to be an internationalist and what it's like to be a human being with others with different cultures. And so we started this uh, in uh, 20, uh, 2010. Uh, we had a two-room thing on East Mulberry, and we moved in here to this particular building that's owned by the city. We're paying rent here, and we've been here for 10 years. And we're on the corner of Mountain and Mason in Fort Collins. In just downtown, so people know. Old Town, Fort Collins, right near the railroad track. When the train comes through, we know it. Yeah. And you have speakers come in from all over the world uh, presenting on various topics. Well, they're, they're, they're all community people, just like all of our artwork is community-based. So if, if we have somebody that's famous or somebody who's got great ideas, and most people do, we invite them to come, and especially if it's related to our exhibits. But you started Global Village Museum with your collection. My collection and a, a woman who had a collection of miniatures. Okay. And another guy that came in just a couple months later who had been a teacher at, in Japan for the Department of Defense Schools and was there for 42 years. And he brought all of his Japanese uh, and Chinese things back. Wow. So the three of us got together and we had a couple of friends from Colorado State in the International Programs Office. And we started the, the museum. What was your drive what, when you and your three friends decided when you're sitting around at dinner or whatever and you're talking about setting this up and starting this thing? What was your motivation? What was your desire? What did you want to do for the community? We wanted to share and uh, we wanted to, we, we kept saying we want to bring the world to northern Colorado and northern Colorado to the world. And the way to do that would be to have uh, exhibits, changing exhibits uh, with community artifacts and art and programs of education here that we could teach people and, and people could share and learn and question. And, and, and from that, a lot of people have become international travelers. Uh, we've had some international uh, travel programs right here that we've taken people to Costa Rica was one. Mm -hmm. We took people to Cuba. Nice. Uh, we've done some things. It's wonderful. Lots of interesting That's things sure. happening in Cuba right now. Absolutely right. Um, we're not going to make this a political podcast, but it's very interesting what's ha is. happening over there right now. So what is the mission of Global Village Museum? Um, 
the, the mission uh, in technical terms, um, it's the only international museum uh, and it, it contributes to what we think is the city's uh, vision of making Fort Collins a unique destination. And we celebrate and foster the collection of international collections and connections between Northern Colorado and the world through exhibits of folk art, fine arts, and artifacts from around the globe. It's a beautiful mission. And I'm interested to hear your perspective on the importance art plays in every culture and community that you've been to. You said that you worked in 19 communities, but you also mentioned to me off air that you have traveled to 195 different countries. So you have a really good and valuable perspective on the role that art plays in history and every culture around the world. Well, as a traveler, you yourself know how important that is. Uh, the world is a very large place, very broad, expansive, but simultaneously it's a very small place. And it's inhabited everywhere by human beings, and human beings are creative, and they are, they are constructive, and they have cultures they build, and they need things, and they love art. People are innately, I believe, curious uh, and creative. And so uh, art it plays a great role because you can see a piece of art from overseas or from here, different cultures in our own country and subcultures. And you can see what goes into it, what people's expressions of themselves in the art. You can see those that are, have a practical purpose and those that are just, just for artwork's sake. And uh, we have all that right here in this museum. In fact, we have a brand new exhibit that's opening today. And uh, this exhibit will be going on for three and a half months on uh, containers and how humans contain things. So every sort of box, bottle, bag, whatever you can think of, international, pouch. whatever it is, natural ones, man-made ones, some terrible plastic ones, mm. wooden ones, everything you can think of is here at this exhibit. And it's amazing because uh, everybody has to have containers. Yeah, we never put too much thought into how we transport the things that are important to us. One of my favorite little pieces of art is sitting on the desk when you walk in. Uh, it's the it's a wooden hand carved in Bali, Indonesia, with the world in the center. Mm. And if you are a person of some faith, you might believe that uh, God, Almighty God, might have uh, the whole world in His hands. And and all, human beings can mess that up. They can improve it. Uh, they can work on it. They can uh, improve on. Or they can make it better. Uh, but in all cases, they have to serve and work together in order to survive. And that's what art's about. That's what culture is about. It's interesting that you bring up Bali. Um, in my travels, I noticed that each culture, each country, each community, sometimes within that country, kind of has their own unique focus, their own art that's unique to them. And one of the things that I noticed, particularly in Bali, is the wood carving. They have, in my opinion, the best wood carvers anywhere in the world. They're in Bali. Why do you think that different cultures and different countries and communities around the world have different mediums and different aptitudes towards different focuses of art? Well, it's based on need of the culture and it's based on geography. Mm. Uh, Bali has beautiful artwork, all carved. They also have beautiful cloth. For sure. Uh, they have uh, stories of the, of the Ramayana and cultural programs, dance and the dance. Yeah. 
but the art is wood because there's rainforest there and there's beautiful wood to carve. Another great place of wood carvings is in the South Pacific in the Solomon Islands. And we have, we have some great collections of wood carvings, both Indonesian, Balinese, and from the South Pacific here in this museum. But you see different people have, have expressions of art. Uh, and uh, it, it all is in the eye of the beholder. One of my favorite pieces here is called the Maid Myrrh. Maid Myrrh. Maid Myrrh. And uh, my, my brother-in-law loves mermaids. And I was in the Solomon Islands as country director for the Peace Corps. And the volunteers told me there was a master carver on a small island in the back of the island. I could go there and ask him to make me a mermaid. And I asked him if he would like to do that. He said, sure. And he said, how, how big do you want it? I said, oh, a couple of feet. And he said, I can do that. And I said, he said, how much detail on the private parts? And I said, uh, generic. How about generic? <laughs> he said, I can do that. And I said, his name was Peter. And I said, Peter, do you know what a mermaid is? He said, sure. I said, what do you think it is? He said, well, it's a half woman, half fish. I said, absolutely right. And he said, it'll take me six months. I said, that's okay. I'm going to give this to my brother-in-law for Christmas. So uh, six months later, he brought it into the capital city, Haniara, and uh, delivered it in my office. And I opened the box. And I must have had a quite surprised look on my face. And he said, you don't like it. I said, Peter, it's fabulous. But I don't think we can call this a mermaid. It has to be called a maid myrrh because it's a fish top and a woman's bottom. And uh, you'll see it in the museum here. It's beautiful. That's but that's right. cultural. Right. And, and the carving is still beautiful. Whether he'd done a mermaid or a maid myrrh, the carving is there. But culturally, what did he see in his head? What did he know that was? I can't wait to see that. That's a hilarious story. So you mentioned that sometimes art is functional and sometimes art is just for the sake of art or self-expression or expressing one's divine creativity. Why do you think different cultures gravitate towards one or the other, um, a function versus just expression? Well, also, and not only geography plays a role, but climate, obviously, climate, and, and they're faith-based. Many, many artifacts of, of beauty, beauty are, are done for faith reasons. Uh, whoever people worship, whatever they think, however they develop something for the honor of a, of a king or a, a president or a leader, a chief, uh, those things are all done, and, and and again, it's in the eye of the of the maker of the art, whether it's a painting or a carving or whatever. And we know in West Africa there was a, a period of time when they they make bronze and brass things. It's the, an early age and beautiful things that come out of West Africa. Uh, other places use cloth, and they uh, so it and in all cases they'd like to to combine the artwork, the functional artwork, with the the actual beauty of the artwork with the function of wearing it or, or carrying it or using it for containers or on your head or storing ancestor bones or whatever it is. Uh, there's a real mix of those things. And there's no, there's no line to separate it, no matter what culture you're dealing with. Do you find that the majority of cultures in other countries, their art serves a purpose beyond just adorning a, a home? Everyone. Everyone does. But at the same time, uh, they like to adorn themselves. You know, they, they found that, that even in the Cro-Magnon times, people made jewelry out of shells or rocks to wear around their neck for adornment. So uh, that's a human a desire, I think. All humans desire to be adorned somewhat. Let's talk about storytelling through art. That's one of the things that's always fascin fascinated me. 
whether it's the Anasazis or the Incas and Mayas or all the cultures that a lot of cultures preserve their history and share their stories, their ancestral stories and cultural stories through art. Um, Could you share a little bit with me on what you've experienced and maybe some anecdotal stories on, on that subject? Uh, well, there's, there's not a case where a piece of art, no matter what the medium is, that does not have a story to go along with it. True. And one of the problems that we have as Americans, we're often a bit impatient. Uh, we don't take the time to appreciate the work that's gone into it or the value of it or what it means, what it represents. We look at it and say, interesting, uh, let's move on. And so art museums and galleries uh, that, that, and, and places that sell international things, uh, they all have these, the, the playment of art is part of the, of the culture and part of the, of the storytelling. And if you don't delve into that, you'll miss the story. You have to look at the story. One of the problems we have in this museum is if you write the story up on, uh, on paper and put it next to the eye, it's too much reading. It's too hard. People, we, and again, Americans don't take the time to read that. Right. So we need to use some medium that they can do it like a Q reader or something else, a QR reader, or, and programs where people can get this information and ask questions. It's, uh, it's impossible to do it one way. You have to use many ways. And, and very, we're very lucky uh, our society has developed now where there's many ways that you can get information, not like just the old way of either reading it or being told. There's all kinds of things you can do. Why do you think that the majority of artists today, particularly here in America, don't tell more stories through their art? Well, they're as impatient as the people that are looking and buying their art. Uh, They're impatient to get it done and they have to make a living. And most people don't have any other way other than how they can work with their hands and build and make something, create something. So uh, if they stop to think about it, they would figure out that they're also telling a story and what the story is. And if people would ask, you know, one of the things we had a, a great show here, just the last show before this, was children's art of creations of the mind of, of beasts, mythical and magical beasts. Mm. And children have, are very fertile, creative minds. And you, you ask a child what that painting or that picture or the drawing or the carving represents, and they want to tell you about it. They, they want you to also to do some guessing, see if you can come up with it, but they want to tell you about it. As we get to be adults, I don't think we take the time to do that as we should. It seems like we lose our creativity and our imagination at some point. The creativity is still there, but it could be better if it had a story to go along with it. And you're right. And we don't take the time. It's a time factor. Just out of curiosity, and we're kind of on a tangent here, but I, I like this topic. Do you think that it has anything to do with our comfort? Like we're here, we... We need water. We go to the faucet. We need to go to the bathroom. We go to the bathroom. We need food. We go to the the refrigerator or the grocery store. Do you think that our comfort level here in the States plays any role in this? Absolutely. Uh, Because we're, we're demanding and we have expectations of ease and quickness and ability to take something and put it in the oven and be done with it right out of the box, frozen for us. The instant gratification. Instant gratification. Other people that have to go look for water and maybe walk a, a mile or two or three miles will can make a container and carve a container that's beautiful as well as functional. And uh, so we don't have to do that. Most of our art is not functional. 
Uh, it could be, but it's now becoming uh, just something for adornment or to look at, not functional. But you'll find in this exhibit a lot of stuff from America, a lot of stuff from Europe, a lot of stuff from the developed and developing world that are both functional and artful. And uh, it's, it's cool. So in all the countries that you've been to and your giant collection, tell me one story of one of the artifacts that you personally found that really spoke to you. I'm sure there's dozens on dozens, but just the first one that pops to the top of your head, that's like this one meant a lot. When I heard the story behind this piece, it, it really touched my heart. The Maiden Bird probably would be one. <laughs> the Maiden Bird, right? Uh, the, the Solomon Islands has great carvers in the South Pacific. Uh, there's two things there that I really like in the exhibit here. One is a, uh, they, they carve everything of fish and crabs and, and all everything with the sea because their whole life revolves around the sea. And that's the main diet they have along with some starchy yams or uh, some taro that they would grow. And uh, so one man was walking on the street with a half of a tree log uh, and it was carved with animals, not fish and not birds. But had birds in them, but not fish, and not sea life. And so I said, "What? What is this?" And he said, "Well, everybody does spirits of the sea, but I want to do spirits of the land." And I said, "Oh!" And so I looked at this piece, and it has about eighteen or twenty different animal varieties, from centipedes to birds to uh, to to little toads, uh, to little pigs, things that exist on on the islands. But then one side of it has a monkey. Okay. And I said to him, uh, excuse me, but isn't that a monkey? He said, yes. I said, but but there are no monkeys in the Solomon Islands or in the South Pacific. He said, I know that, but I like monkeys. <laughs> so, so he carved a monkey, and it's a beautiful little monkey, and I bought the whole damn thing because uh, I liked it too. And because he liked monkeys. He liked monkeys. The other story I might tell you is about the maid mer, and I was uh, having a, a mermaid carved uh, in Solomon Islands, I was the country director for the Peace Corps there. We had 75 volunteers working in community development and in construction and teaching. And uh, volunteers said, well, there was a carver on the back of one island. His name was Peter. Master Carver, he could do a mermaid for me. So I went to visit him. And I said, Peter, can you carve this mermaid? He said, sure. How big? And I said, "Doe a couple feet. He said, I can do that. He said, how much detail in the private parts? I said, oh, well, make it generic, please. He said, I can do that. It'll take me six months. I said, that's fine. Six months later, he brought me the, the carving. And uh, I opened it up, and I must have had a surprised look on my face because he said, I think you don't like this mermaid. And I said, Peter, it's a fabulous mermaid, but I don't think we can call it that. I think we have to call it a maid mer because it has a fish head and a, and a lady's body and below. And uh, I said, in fact, Peter, this maid mer is so wonderful that if I give this to my brother-in-law, it'll be the only one around. So I need a second one for me to have one. And the second one is here in the museum. Oh, so your brother-in-law also he got has, a, a He has one. He has a maiden mer as well. Nice. Um, There's an old sea chanty, by the way, from an old British ships of a of a mermaid and the sailors jumping in to be, meet the mermaid. And it turns out it was just like that. It turns out that it was fish-headed and, and bodied. And maybe he heard that story. I don't know. It's an old Probably. former British protectorate, so maybe that's where you got it. So some old illustrations or paintings of this. And Possibly. Saw it somewhere back in his subconscious. Possibly. John, what would you say is the most empowering gift that you would like to share with the world? We've got lots of people listening today. What's the single most important 
lesson or empowering gift that you've had or experienced in your life? That's just a great question, Brian. Um, Well, for one thing, I think uh, a gift of curiosity is I'm lucky to have that. And I've, I've got the ability to serve and to help. I'm a Rotarian. I've been a Rotarian since 1985 in, this, in Botswana. And the, one of the models of Rotary International is service above self. If you're not dedicated to service above yourself, your life will be incomplete and not, not full. And we all have things to give. We all have things to share. We all have things to help others with. So that would be one of the things that I really care about. And that's whether I'm living abroad or living here. Uh, th- those are very important things. Also, I think uh, uh, even though the world is very broad, very wide, as I said, I, I think it's small. And if we accept the differences and the similarities of everybody, then whatever we're looking at or whatever we're talking to people about, uh, we will profit and so will they just by talking about it and seeing and sharing and, and what they've created and, and what we can share with others. Uh, those are gifts that are very important because without those, our life uh, can tend to be very dull. And it's very easy for us in America that have many things to just sort of hermitize ourselves and become shuttered in our little worlds because that's the easiest way. But to open up a little bit, to share and to give and to see what's out there is will be beneficial for everyone. I agree wholeheartedly. And that's kind of how I've lived my life. That childlike curiosity has never left me. Don't lose it because that's what I'm quite a bit older than you. And I still have it. I still climb trees and do backflips. And if I see a caterpillar on the sidewalk, I'll pick him up and move him. Um, Curiosity is a big part of what keeps me excited about life. I can no longer climb trees. I can't hopscotch. I can't jump down. And if I see a caterpillar, uh, the, the the floor this has been a lot farther down than it used to be when I was younger. <laughs> but with a little help, I can get down there and get and save that caterpillar. And I do the same thing. Or you can ask somebody else to do it. Oh, and then they scowl at you because they're in a hurry and they're not interested. How has creativity and wonderment served you personally? I mean, obviously, it inspired you to travel to 195 countries. Um, in what other ways has curiosity driven your life and where you are today, John? Well, it's, it, it formed my career, it formed my life for years and years. And I, uh, I've always said I'm a, a, a forever student, and I'm a forever teacher, and I'm a forever internationalist. Hmm. And uh, those, four, those three things, and I'm still as, uh, as curious as I used to be. And I can't do everything that I can do, but I uh, used to be able to do, but I still try. I think uh, I'd advise everybody to be interactive with others and to care and to understand, try to understand. And then they move forward with the interests and curiosities that they have. Everybody can can share that and be beneficial for everybody. I, I, I had a wonderful career. I wouldn't change any part of my career from from elementary school all the way to today. It sounds I'm like nearly you're 80 years old and I still like doing what I do beautiful, fascinating life. And we can talk for hours and hours about all the stories. We need more podcasts, Brian. I'll be happy to come back. Um, I just lost the question I was about to ask. Oh, how do you think that we can inspire people to be more curious about their neighbor? I think one of the reasons that culture in this in society today is breaking down why, why there's so much division is that we seem to lack a genuine curiosity 
in what another person is going through and their life experience and, and things like that? How can we, as individuals, inspire people to be more curious about the person they're having a conversation with, whether it's the cashier at the grocery store or the person they're in a fight on Twitter with, uh, inspiring that curiosity to find out more about where they're at and what their life experience is rather than just trying to get their opinion across. If you and I could rule the world, we'd make this a better place, you know, because I totally agree with you. Uh, part of the problem is that we're, we're in too much of a hurry and we're impatient and we're in too much of a hurry. We don't take the time to talk to people. Uh, you can bring a lot more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. So you need to be polite, you need to be curious, you need to be open, and you need to be fair with people. And people love to communicate if, they, if you try. So that means slowing down, slowing down and talking to people and doing things. If you have children or grandchildren, you can take them to the Global Village Museum or to other museums. You can take them to fairs. You may have to wear a mask. You may have to get vaccinated, but you can still do it. There are things we can do. And if we would take time to know who our neighbors are, we'd all be benefit. We'd all benefit from that because neighbors are, are good people too. And maybe they are noisy. Maybe they don't even know they're noisy. By talking to people and meeting them and slowing down, um, you can do those things. And, and bring your family. Do things together as a family and do things international, whether it's a film or a museum or, or a program or a concert, do it. And ask them their story. Ask them the story. And, and be prepared to listen. Don't be hasty. Listen to what they have to say. They want to tell you their story, too. You can share, but listen to them. That's a good, good thing to say. So you've been to 195 countries. Have you noticed that people are more different or more similar around the world? Both. Okay. In what way? Well, human beings are human beings, right? And they all, we all have bodily functions. We all have things we have to do. We all have, have to, we all have to eat and we drink to survive. We have to have a roof over our head. Um, and we can be more creative in doing those things than others. Some people are more creative and some people are just basic. Uh, some people are like me and, on the, on the edge of hoarding and enjoying surrounding myself with artworks that I have a story that goes with each one. There's not one piece of, of art that I own or that I've shared with this museum that doesn't have a story to go with it. So people are, are the same, but the same way they're different. And the difference is what's exciting. This, when they're the same, that's exciting too. And as you know, traveling, uh, you don't even, you can, you can learn a few phrases of a foreign language and open conversations with that and find people that if you speak uh, basic, slow down your English, they'll understand you. One thing I find Americans funnily do is funnily, not a word. What they do amusingly is uh, they think that if you don't understand English, if you shout it louder, they'd understand you. They're not deaf. They just they just don't have the English competence that you have. We're very forceful. And, and yeah, and let them talk to you in their language. Uh, it's going to be more difficult. I'm very lucky. I learned, I've learned nine languages by living overseas. And wherever I've worked in the 19 countries, I really think it's important to be able to communicate in the language. So I've taken a lot of time to learn and study and practice using them. I'm not perfect. I'm not one word is perfect. But it's really important to, to do that. There's a funny story of a friend of mine. He came to visit me, and we, we'd been in Egypt. And... Uh, 
he said, how do I say thank you in Arabic? And I said, well, here in Egypt, it's very simple. They just say shukran, just two syllables, shukran, shukran. He says, that's simple. I can say that. I said, yeah. So he, he, I took him to the marketplace and he bought some stuff and he shukraned himself around the, the place and he got tea and, and crumpets and, and, and he, everybody enjoyed him and he enjoyed it. Ten years later, the same guy shows up in Tunisia where I'm the Peace Corps director and he gets off the plane and he says, John, I remember shukran. And I said, Tom, it's not shukran. Here, they, it's classical Arabic. You have to say, barakal al and he said, what? And I said, Barakal Alfie. He said, I, I, I can't say that. I said, well, most Americans can't because you don't study Arabic. But at the embassy, they tell you to use some words that sound like. And if you say it properly, the, the air of the uh, speaker will hear you say it properly. So what you Plus say. Plus with some gestures. And you know, what you just say, barf at your feet. But you say it fairly quickly. Barf at your feet. Barf at your feet sounds like Barakal Alfie. And they'll hear it. So he said, oh, barf at your feet. I can do that. So he's practicing. The next day he wants to go play golf. I take him to the golf course. He's practicing in the car. We get out of the car. A caddy hands him a club. He looks at the caddy, and I can see the wheels turning in his little head. And he says, puke on your shoes. (laughs) (laughs) And the caddy looks at him, and I'm laughing. I said, Tom, it's not puke on your shoes. It's barf at your feet. He says, it means the same thing. Why doesn't he understand? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> classical, ugly American, but it doesn't mean the same thing. It, you have to do something that sounds like it. And the caddy probably spoke English, so it made the story even worse. <laughs> he didn't. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Jeez. But in all the places that I've been around the world, there are a lot of differences amongst people and a lot of difference, difference, a difference amongst culture. But I feel like there's more similarities between humans than there are differences. I feel like we all essentially want the same things. We want to be understood. We want to know that we matter. We want to be loved. We want our essential needs to be taken care of. At the core, it seems to me that humans, no matter where we are in the world, no matter who you're talking to around the world, somebody has gone through something hard and they're just like you in that they want to be loved, they want to take care of their family, they want to know they have something to eat and that they're safe, and they want to know that they do something of value. Do you find that to be true as absolutely, well? Absolutely, you're absolutely correct. Absolutely right. And, and uh, you know, th- that applies whether you're talking to a, a noisy neighbor or maybe a political foe here in our country is we have political differences. If you look at the things that we're, we all are the same about, you can get over all that stuff by not even, you don't have to talk politics all the time. You don't have to deal with the differences. You can deal with the similarities. And people are so willing and anxious to share with you their lives and their culture and, and what they do that you've, you've seen this. You reward it every time you step off uh, on a road and meet somebody by listening to them and sharing with them that we're all the same. We're all the same. I think that if we started each interaction in this country with that realization and that mindset that whoever I'm talking to, no matter what their political view or their cultural view or anything that they're going through, if we started a conversation and interaction with this understanding that they're more like me than they are different, then we would be in a lot different place here. You want to be empowered in the world, that's how you start. You start with with things that that you share. And, and you're humble and you're willing to listen and to learn. 
That's humility. That's how we all can get along. And we could do that with every single human being we meet and many animals. Right. Uh, you know, it, it works across the board for all living creatures and plants. You know, we humility need, and compassion transcends la- transcends language. Absolutely. That's empowerment. That's 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 the way to the future. I agree. Well, in our final minutes here, I would like to get back to the importance that you feel art has in our community and the value that Global Village Museum offers all of the front range in Colorado in bringing in all these different exhibits from around the world. Um, What does that do when somebody that's never traveled or somebody that was born and raised in, in rural Colorado or whatever comes to this village museum and sees the art from all over? I think the surprise on people's faces uh, as they see the similarities and the differences in each of the galleries, whatever the whatever the subject of the uh, exhibit is, uh, all the art that we have, everything that we've shared is all within the Northern Colorado community. It's it's a community sharing because we don't bring in traveling exhibits. It's all local exhibits, and the programs we have are local people, universities, travelers, people that have done creative things, uh, and so. This is the this is the essence of this very small. It's not so small. It's about ten thousand square feet of museum. We have five galleries, and each one's different, and each one is special, and we're very proud of it. It's good for kids. We have things for children. We have things for young people. We have things for seniors and regular adults, and we have a lot of people coming. School groups. Uh, we have uh, retirement communities coming, and everybody has everybody leaves with a smile on their face. And, and if they write up something uh, online, it's always it's always been good because this is a very special place in Fort Collins. And you have speakers come in and talk about all kinds of different subjects, people from around the world. You're talking to me uh, not that long ago. I guess it was 2020 or whatever. You had the Tibetan monks here and they made this beautiful, gorgeous mandala for what was it? Five days uh-huh. um, out in the sidewalk. And you had. Todd here talking about his time in Taiwan and you have all these speakers. We have a small program room and we're able to get a larger room if we know there's a bigger crowd. Uh, unfortunately, the year and a half of COVID has some curtailing on that, sure. but we've had uh, a lot of stuff online and uh, uh, on Zoom and on uh, we've had we've had streaming and we'll have we're hoping to do the new programs, both streaming and live, depending on what happens and uh, uh, right now, uh, as effective this week, the end of this week, our new exhibit opens and we're asking people to come in masked, uh, whether they're vaccinated or not, only because uh, for safety reasons and people are more comfortable. We, children, uh, obviously, under the age of 12 can't be vaccinated. So um, we're going to have more programs and more exhibits. And uh, uh, at the this uh, current exhibit on how we contain ourselves is really a cool exhibit. And starting in November, we'll have the international nativities from mm. around the world. And we've had uh, 300 and 400 nativities wow. that people bring in. It's fascinating. We talk about people the same and different. The way they uh, demonstrate a nativity in a, in a Christian faith uh, is so different. But the idea, the concept of nativity is what the same for everybody. So the expression is different, but the, the intention uh, is the same. Right. The message is the same. Right. What your mission, you said, of the Global Village Museum was to bring the world to Fort Collins and bring Fort Colorado. Collins to the and, world. And, right. and, 
we have people from all over the world that come here. We have a big map out in front where people we ask people to put dots where they've been, uh, and the whole world is covered up. But most of our visitors are obviously from northern Colorado. What do you think the value is for somebody that was born in Fort Collins and hasn't had the opportunity to travel of coming here to see these different exhibits and hearing these different speakers and getting a, a global perspective? It's uh, eye-opening and uh, broadening their horizons for sure on the world perspective. Uh, our, our volunteers, many of them have never traveled, hmm. and they love it because they can travel vicariously by being at the museum. And uh, people come in, and it's, it, it stimulates children, uh, it stimulates uh, young people. Everybody seems to enjoy it, and it, 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 that value is good. We're open, by the way, just uh, for the galleries. We're open uh, Tuesdays through Saturday, uh, closed uh, Sunday, Monday, okay. from 11 a.m. until 5 p.m. And usually our programs are either on a Tuesday evening uh, at 6 or 5.30 or 7 or Thursday evening. So we have... Uh, even tonight is the first Friday gallery walk uh, okay. in Fort Collins, and we're open every first Friday of the month, too. So That's it's fantastic. Good. Well, in our parting moments, John, is there one particular message that you would like to get across? One important point, if you could inoculate the world to use a term du jour, is, is there one piece of wisdom or insight that you would like to share Find a way to care about and serve others. That's what I'd say. And it's not as hard as you might think. It's a lot easier. You can start right in your own home with your plants, with your pets, with your family. You can take care of them. You can do the same with everybody you meet. Care and serve. What a beautiful message. Barakam Fik. Barakalau Fik. Barakalau Fik. Thank you so much for your time here today, John. I'm so excited to have more conversations with you and talk about all of your time in Vietnam and some of the other countries and experiences that you've had. And I will be back. This has been wonderful. We will do it. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you. Oh, my God. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. There was so much beauty and, and insight and passion for what he does in that interview i really hope that uh, a lot of that came through and something touched your heart before we close i just want to give one more shout out to shields jacks elkhorn fly shop christy sports outpost sun sport cowpoke corral the ymca rocky mountain adventures whitewater rafting garage or gear age in fort collins and myself for all of the incredible donations to the silent auction coming up I hope that uh, you guys have a wonderful day. You enjoyed this and please share and bid on the silent auction and I will talk to you soon. treat today. In today's conversation, I get to sit down with Dr. Elena Estnall and talk about something that is so vitally important, especially in the world today, which is empowered leadership. Uh, Dr. Elena has a master's, has two master's degrees, a PhD, and certified in like a dozen other modalities. 
So you're in for a treat. You're about to hear something really special and profound. But before we get into that conversation, I wanted to send a shout out and thank you to all the businesses and artists who have supported this coming silent auction. Uh, we have Painting with a Twist, Studio Vino, Haley Hassler, Rosetta, Bronze Sculptor, Global Village Museum, Loveland Art Museum, Artisan U, Daggett Glass Studios, Colorado Symphony Orchestra, Winterfest, and Off the Hook Arts, the Rialto Theater in Loveland, Loveland Art Museum, Rich and Christy Helzer, uh, Rich created this beautiful wire bonsai tree, uh, Michaela Kiernan, Glassy Mermaid, and Black Sand Glass, just to name a few. It's going to be a fantastic silent auction with the theme of the arts. And once again, all of the proceeds go to a world empowered to help us help people who like helping people. Uh, with the money that we raised from last month's silent auction with the, sp- the outdoors theme, uh, we were able to create an adventure and experience for 20 to 30 kids to go out on the field at Dick's Sporting Goods Park and get to meet the Colorado Rapids. So help us continue to help other people while getting yourselves a lot of great deals and support our silent auction. Please share and bid. And I would like to introduce you to my friend, Dr. Elena Estenal. Good afternoon, friends, family members, ladies and gentlemen. I'm BC, the host of Oddcast the Podcast, or a World Empowered Dialogues. I hope that you're having a wonderful day as we are this beautiful fall afternoon. I have the pleasure and great joy to sit here with my dear friend, Dr. Elena Estenal. We're actually sitting face to face, which as everybody knows for the last year and a half or so is kind of an anomaly. So we get to be in each other's presence and have this conversation. And my friend, Dr. Elena, not only has a PhD and two master's degrees, but she's also a consummate learner, always educating herself in different modalities from Reiki to Huna to Superconscious Recode. And I'll let her explain a few of the other things that she's an expert in. But this is a really fascinating topic that we're going to talk about today and something that I'm really excited about. Um, I really think that it's of paramount importance to have these conversations, especially now with the turmoil and the uncertainty of where we are. But I would like to introduce my dear friend, Dr. Elena. Welcome. Thank you for being with me today. And please share with our audience a little bit about you and where you come from and your background. It's such a pleasure and honor to be here with you, BC, and to be able to do this face-to-face. I think that's really great, so fun. And I'm going to actually share something that it's not about my, um, but my vita. <laughs> like you have just shared a lot of the things that I've done, but um, at heart, I am an artist. And I was a ballerina for many years, and... I just love creating and I love creating all things and I love the experience of creating and co-creating with other people as you know and um, I feel like this is something that I am reconnecting to and coming back to as a way of also reclaiming myself and reintegrating into all of who I am. My dad actually recently said you're one of those few people 
I don't understand how you do this, but you practice all the arts. You dance, you sing, you paint, you write, you know. He's like, I don't know how you do that. And I said, I just love to create, you know. And so I think that in the end, um, I'm going to say that I am a lover of life and I really love the idea of not just creating and expressing for myself but really helping other people unleash and unlock their own creativity so they come back to themselves and really express their gifts into the world well we'll be able to talk a little bit more about creativity (laughs) and the importance that that plays in people's lives and why we believe uh, or where we believe that comes from what are your degrees in what is your current specialty So I am a high-performance psychologist and a leadership coach. I have a PhD in counseling psychology, a master's degree in um, high-performance and performance enhancement, a master's degree in uh, pedagogy, kinesiology, and uh, choreography, and then a bachelor's degree in teaching and performing dance. And amongst other things, again, with the Huna and the Reiki and everything else. Um, Well, we're here to talk today specifically about leadership and the importance that that plays in society and communities and at home in our interpersonal lives. Why have you felt called to have this conversation specifically around leadership today? And why do you feel that it's important that we share these messages right now? Uh, That's a fantastic question. And um, first of all, you know, it's been quite a few years uh, that I have been working as a leadership coach, training leaders and organizations on how to not only enhance their performance, but become more emotionally intelligent and skillful at how they manage their communication, how to retain employees, etc. And I have noticed that my joy and satisfaction in doing that kind of work magnifies every time because I see that it's not just making a difference in the people that are in front of me, but that those leaders are then taking that work into their families and into their workspace with their employees and their communities and being able to see the ripple effect is really really powerful and inspiring to me so from a personal standpoint um, I want to be able to have a greater impact in people's lives and I feel like this is an an avenue that um, I enjoy and that I'm skilled at doing secondly I think that it's no, uh, no surprise that we are in a place of um, redirection, reintegration, um, as a as a world in general i think that we are trying to figure out how we need to shift what needs to shift in our 
individual lives and how we are um, and how we conduct our businesses and how we interact with one another. And it's very clear that expect, I think for a long time, at least I'm gonna speak for myself, you know, I thought, okay, well, like, I need to look for leaders to know who to follow and I need to look for, you know, other people outside of me. And it's become very clear more and more that we are the people that we've been looking for. We are the people that we've been waiting for. And it is in all of our responsibility to actually rise up as leaders to create the world that we want to create rather than pointing fingers and blaming and um, criticizing and rather being able to roll up our sleeves and saying, how am I contributing? What can I do to create the world that I want to see? So I want a world that it's a lot more harmonious, harmonious and peaceful and joyful. And so I want to have a part in that. That really is kind of a tangential benefit to the way the world's run for the last five years or something, right? Like in the absence of quality leadership, we've all realized that this is a role that we need to step up in and start taking more personal responsibility and uh, seeing how that we can affect the change in our communities. It also feels like we're on the path to shifting the paradigm of what leadership looks like and how we lead and what we expect of our leaders. But at the same time, there's a lot of factions within our society that are at odds with each other and seeking different forms of leadership. Um, What do you think right now is a way that we can bring divergent sides together? You know, one of the greatest, um, I'm going to say one of the, the biggest tenets that I focus in my uh, training, leadership training, is the importance of empowerment and self-accountability. And it's really easy to be blaming and pointing fingers. We live in a society where our paradigm has been rooted on blame. I mean, even our judicial system, right? It's like, it's either your fault or it's my fault. There's yeah. no other, at fault. right? It's, it's a dichotomous system, but there is fault regardless. And as long as we are in a paradigm of finding fault, blaming and pointing fingers, we will never find integration and harmony. And so from my perspective, oops. Nice. <laughs> um, from my perspective, the way forward is for each of us to begin to stop blaming and stop pointing fingers outside of ourselves and stop looking at how am I contributing? You what can I take? At? Start, yeah. Start looking at how am I contributing? Um, what what can I take I ownership for? What is my role? Absolutely. And you know, 
often the challenges that we're facing are actually opportunities to for growth. We often, I'm gonna say the greatest challenges that we face usually involve interpersonal interactions, um, other people, which is fascinating to me, right? Because we are really brothers and sisters, we're, we're uh, one and the same, and yet our, our greatest joys and our greatest challenges come in the form of interpersonal interactions and interpersonal relationships. And yet when we can feel the challenge and instead of being like, oh, that person, right? And being like, oh, wow, I'm feeling really triggered. I wonder what is it about that person or that interaction that it's bringing up in me that I need to work on? You know, like how can I use this as an opportunity for me to heal something that it's probably hasn't been addressed or hasn't been healed because obviously if it's triggering me then it's still you, painful in me <laughs> it sounds to me that you're advocating for a higher level of self-awareness and personal agency in in society and people at large how do we facilitate that <laughs> There's, there's no panacea, there's no drug, there's no vaccine or inoculation. How do we advocate and facilitate the opportunity for more self-awareness in some that seem completely unaware? A hundred percent. And right there, you have highlighted why I'm so passionate about doing this work and why we need to have more people doing this work because it is not easy it's not going to be a inoculation it's not going to be a pill it's not going to be a uh, one and done right like I'm going to check this and then I'm, I'm good to go I'm going to learn this or I'm going to do it once and then I'm good to go not unless you can get 300 million people to take DMT or psilocybin <laughs> all at once and then who, who knows what kind of the reaction will happen from that even then, because I think about it, it's like even even this pandemic, I mean, ultimately, it's our reality is really how, what we construct, what we make of our experience, right? And so uh, in the context of this pandem- pandemic, and I'm just going to use it as an example, I have heard people say, this has been the most challenging and most trying period of my life, and it's been really scary blah, blah, blah. And I've also heard people say, this has been the most magical, amazing time in my life. And I've discovered myself. I've reinvigorated goals. I've become more connected than ever to my friends and family. And then conversely, there's an entire other side of that where people are like, I've never felt more disconnected and I have no idea where I'm supposed to go or what I'm supposed to do. Uh-huh. Sorry to interrupt. No, that's, but you, you were in synergy with my thoughts. Like usual. <laughs> yes. So 100%. And that's exactly what I mean, right? So if we use this as an example, we could say either there's something really wrong with the world or the world is exactly as it should be and giving us the opportunity to really see all of the things that are still unhealed, all of the things that are still a problem all of the things that still need to be addressed that had been 
shoved under the rug, so to speak, and covered up. And it's not going to be an easy process. And it's going to take commitment from people to really recognize if I am willing to step up and do this work, not only will I not only will I experience a greater sense of satisfaction and fulfillment and internal alignment and unity and authenticity, but I get to have a greater sense of purpose and impact and legacy because of how I'm showing up and how I'm influencing and impacting others and how I am choosing to show up in my world and in my little circle of influence that might be my friends and my family my co-workers you know my community in whichever way that shows up it's also exceptionally empowering to have that viewpoint because it helps a person feel that if they don't have control over the outcome, they at least have an impact over the outcome. But again, I go back to the original question, like we're advocating self-awareness and personal agency. How do we convince so many that are stuck in a victim mentality and a blame paradigm where everybody else is at fault for what's wrong in their lives how do we change this perspective and help create or incentivize if you will more personal agency and self-awareness you already said it (laughs) did i yes you did and so i'm going to pull it apart and dissect it Because when we are in that victim mindset, in that victim space, we feel stuck. We feel powerless. Um, And consequently, we experience a lot of negative emotions like anger and despair and frustration. And those are, to me, the red flags that highlight that you are feeling stuck and helpless helpless and helpless absolutely and as long as you know one of the things that um i'm known to say a lot is when you try to control things that are out of your control you end up feeling more out of control Mm. right and so when you are unable to take any ownership and any responsibility for anything that is showing up in your life and you are pointing fingers and blaming everybody else you know your pet your neighbor the government your job your employer whoever that might be god a virus correct then you are at cost everything else will have an impact on you and you are you can't do anything you feel like a leaf on the wind exactly it's a horrible feeling. I cannot imagine why anybody would want to stay feeling that way. And I think that we do, A, because sometimes it brings some secondary gain, mm. right? Um, we might get more Pity. Right. Or we might 
get to have an excuse for not doing things or you know we get to be right about our perspective or mindset but the reality of it is that if you can be open to doing the work and examining okay um, I'm not perfect because nobody's perfect right um, I'm gonna go on a tangent for a moment here and come back my um, my performance psych advisor used to always tease me a lot about you know I am a recovering perfectionist and so he'd be like okay you want to you want to test for if you want to you want to know if you're really perfect and he worked a lot with gym gymnasts and so you know this ran pretty rampant and he said go home fill your bathtub with about I don't know what like 10 inches of water 20 inches of water and then get in if you get wet you're not perfect okay I don't <laughs> understand the analogy well, why why I'm saying that is it was like it was sort of this test of like if you get wet then you're not perfect right so most of us are gonna get in there and get wet and so we're all imperfect we're all gonna make mistakes and that's just part of being human mm. right and if we are willing to recognize that we are imperfect and that we are still worthy of love and belonging even though that we are imperfect then we can allow our egos to take ownership and responsibility for how we have created the experiences and the reality that we are currently living and when we can adopt that perspective all of a sudden you start having power and control over a lot of things right mainly like how you think about things how you what is your attitude about things what is your uh, your daily practices all of those things give you lots of power about shifting how you're going to feel how you're going to respond how you're going to react into the world and then you can go from a place of being totally in a place of victim to being in a place of complete empowerment and feeling a sense of connection peace and trust that everything is happening just the way that it needs to happen and that every single experience that is showing up for you it's showing up for you for your growth it's every challenging relationship it's helping you see something else that you need to work on something else that you need to um, heal or process and that ultimately we are the creators of our experience I, I can't imagine why anybody wouldn't want to have that I don't think that it's something that they don't want to have it just seems to me that so many people have been raised in an environment where they felt like everything they have done or everything they do is wrong and they feel so intrinsically broken and fallible that they can't help but to blame other people as a way to pacify that wounded ego. Um, you know, it's been said that Ego is the anesthesia to numb the pain of stupidity. I've, I've never liked the stupidity part, but I do believe that ego is the anesthesia to numb the pain of in inadequacy. And I feel like 
a big reason why so many are stuck in the victim mentality and the blame paradigm is this deep sense of being worthless and feeling inadequate themselves. And when you feel poorly about who you are, then you look for a way to push the pendulum to the other side. And that usually entails making somebody else the villain, vilifying somebody else, the other, the bad other, making them at cause for our discomfort or the bad situation that's come about. Um, so that that opens a bigger can of worms like it's, it sounds like to advocate for personal agency and self-awareness that we have to fix this sense of inadequacy in the whole of society and that feels a bit daunting is there something that is there something that we could do again aside from dmt and psilocybin and uh sending 300 million americans on a 10-day silent retreat uh, something that we can do to start moving people towards this direction because again i feel like this is it's a paramount problem it's one of the the biggest challenges that we face as a society today is the division amongst us um so figuring out a way to come together and to heal these inner wounds is super important well it's part of the reason why i believe that um we all need to spend some time devoted to personal development it's being alone it's part of the reason why I, you know, you said I'm this, I don't know, crazy <laughs> um, person in terms of committed to my own personal and spiritual development. But you I, are kind of a fanatic. <laughs> um, and part of that, BC, is because I feel like I don't ever want to ask my clients to do things that I haven't done or that I wouldn't be willing to do. Which consequently means that I need to be working on my shit. Uh, A a counselor who doesn't want to be a hypocrite? You are an anomaly. (laughs) Sorry, all you other counselors out there. That that was meant to be a joke. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I feel like because of what you just said, I agree. I think that most of us are carrying some type of wound around not good enough or being incapable or being unworthy or um, and that consequently much of our ego is oriented towards self-protection and it's part of why Again, it's part of why I'm committed to doing this work because if we are um, moving through life only to satisfy our ego, we are living very unconsciously, right? And so part of this process is really about being able to recognize that our conscious mind is only one part of our mind. We have our unconscious mind, which is then continually trying to protect us and continually trying to uh, maintain the status quo and then we have our super conscious mind that out that is that part of us that is connected to what I 
like to call what Jung called the collective unconscious, which is, you know, that field of consciousness where we are all connected, where we all come to be and recognize ourselves in each other. And the more that we can become awake from this worldly trance that we have been living in, so to speak, where all that we are doing is living in reactivity and trying to protect and soothe our egos and trying to um, achieve the validation so that we can feel better and get a little bit of that dopamine hit before we fall back down again. We really are not living our best life and we are really getting in the way of us being able to share our gifts at a greater degree. So one of the so what we can do I believe you mentioned this we we all need to have a way to develop different practices. I don't think that it's going to be a one pill one thing. Every person we're all in our own different journeys. I believe that having some time alone for reflection is deeply important, whether that is meditation or walking meditation or spending time in nature or journaling, whatever that might be. I think that is really important. Secondly, I think that we all need to have um, coaches, teachers, mentors that can challenge us, that can see us, that can remind us because we're not perfect. You know, friends, partners, whoever that might be, people that are going to be lovingly honest and help us clarify where we're at and where we're going. Give us honest feedback about how we're showing up. Compassionately unbiased accountability partners. Mm-hmm. And, and the other part of it, I think it's also, and you mentioned it, is having a great degree in commitment of compassion and love that starts with ourselves. Because we think that if we are judging ourselves and being critical of ourselves is how we're going to create change. And actually, the more judgmental and critical we are of ourselves, the more shame we create the more blame we create and the more we perpetrate those patterns in our interactions so we need to start with loving ourselves and caring for ourselves and recognizing hey you know i'm not perfect here's here's a time when i um didn't show up as my best self you know what's really fascinating to me what's that if you tell a two-year-old or a three-year-old like Honey, you need to be your best self today. You need to be your best self when we go to so-and-so's house. They know what that is. They don't ask. They're like, okay. And they know exactly what that is. Which tells me that at an intuitive level, at the core of who we are, we all know who we are how to show up as our highest authentic self. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in that place, we actually 
we're not broken. There's nothing wrong with us. Right? Like this is part of what we, mm, this is a, a bit of a bigger spiritual conversation, but um, I believe that part of our journey as humans in this earth we decided to come and experience what we're experiencing and part of that was to experience duality because we couldn't know what hot is without knowing what cold is we didn't know what um up is without knowing what you know down is we couldn't know love if we didn't know fear and so we in in some way we have set it up so that we experience that duality and we get to have the entire breath of the human experience. What I'd like to touch, what I'd like to think about is um, touching the edges of life. And yet, throughout that experience, we also need to remember that who we are at the core is that we are love and we are light, and we have all incredible gifts to show into the world. And that the more that we believe our um, our egos and our unconscious wounds, right? Like all of the stories that were created through those painful childhood experiences that then became what what became a true belief for us. Or how we identify. Right. Um, then we then that's what gets in the way of us fully showing up as conscious leaders and powerful leaders in our lives and in the lives of those that we want to make a difference in or you mentioned something about you know somebody need we need to realize that we are love that we are worthy of love and that we deserve love if somebody is feeling unlovable atrocious worthless ugly hideous unlovable what's the first step how do we help somebody that's feeling that way about themselves to convince themselves that they are lovable? Because honestly, I felt that way for the first half of my life. And many of my listeners know that I had a, a terrible drug addiction. I attempted suicide and I battled depression for many years, um, pri primarily because of that paradigm of feeling unlovable and unworthy. And, you know, for a long time, I practiced that I am lovable, I am lovable. I would tell myself, I love myself, I love myself, I love myself, either out loud or in my head thousands of times a day. There were, there were days that were so dark that I literally never stopped. The entire flipping day, I was saying, I love myself, I love myself, I love myself, just to keep myself from doing something awful. Um, didn't work. It was this exhausting game of tug tug of war where my hands just got bloody and blistered and it never really pushed the pair the pendulum to the other side i never actually felt lovable it did keep me from self-harm it did keep me from doing anything stupid or or dangerous but uh, it never had a lasting effect so what's the first step to helping somebody feel like they are lovable they can be loved and that they are love at their intrinsic core um, so I really appreciate you bringing this up and sharing uh, your experience and there's there's so many layers to your question and you know I would say if somebody's actually feeling that way then absolutely need to have 
professional support, you know, whether that's a therapist or a coach or somebody that is really committed to supporting them. Now, you brought up this idea of affirmations. Affirmations don't work. Um, And people think that... They help. Well, I mean, they keep you... They. I'm going to say this. Um, They give your conscious mind something to do, which is sometimes very important because when you are triggered and your amygdala is in fight or flight your conscious mind then begins to loop and then we cannot get out of a particular thought loop or a particular feeling loop. So affirmations provide a, a purposeful distraction from the mind so that you're not necessarily stuck on a potentially really negative loop like, you know, I want to kill myself and then actually go enact that action, right? However, they're, they're not intended to to shift anything permanently or create any permanent change as you discovered because it's not actually healing the core wound right and so part of and and this is part of the reason why um, you have seen me be so committed to getting so many certifications and going in this quest uh, using so many modalities, havening, um, MER, superconscious transformation, to name a few, um, which are modalities that are actually meant to address the root cause of the problem. And sadly enough, very few interventions do that. Most interventions are geared towards putting a Band-Aid so to speak, and, um, and, and few are meant to actually decrease the amygdala's reactive um, loop that are so embedded in those core wounds. Um, so that, that would be, you know, to a certain degree, I'm going to say it's a little bit of a uh, side tangent so to speak right of of being able to do deeper work and really addressing some of those so that you can feel more whole there's other things that i think that we can do as human beings when we're feeling um that we're not worthy or that we're not good enough and and you know these well because i see you doing them and those are engaging in human connection and actually doing something for other people healthy human connection agreed healthy human connection and and i guess what i'm meaning is um any type of altruistic work any type type of volunteer work or any time that you actually go out of your way to get out of your own shit to go support somebody else or to help somebody else um enhances the connection if that su- if that certain somebody that you happen to help or make a difference is able to show even just a little bit of gratitude and appreciation then the the loop that gets formed is really powerful because just that little bit of gratitude and appreciation there's been lots of studies that have been done 
um, both in companies and um, and and organizations that the number one reason why people leave their jobs and I would say the number one reason why people leave their relationships is because they don't feel appreciated they don't feel validated and um, and just receiving I think it was something like 81% of employees said that the most powerful and motivating thing for them um, in their jobs is to receive appreciation and gratitude right and so when we go out out of our way to show up as our best selves to help other people to be kind to be compassionate and then if we can as the recipient recipient of those things then take the time to express gratitude and appreciation then we begin to form actually this really beautiful um forward positive loop right and then the more that you do that then the better you'll feel about yourself because after a while it's very difficult to continue to stay oriented to a paradigm of I'm worthless when you're actually going out and helping other people and And making a difference are exactly are telling you that you're making a difference or they're you're seeing it in their faces. You, you know, and I know that this is a lot of what you do in your work, right? And so I'd love to hear your experience because I'm, you know, I'm telling you what the research says and I'm telling you what I know to be true and you are probably a living example of that. Well, one of the things that I think is really important to address is that a lot of people feel like their cup is topped off that they're barely getting by, they barely have enough time for their job and their family and you know, maybe taking a bath every other night or something like that. So they feel like their cup is top, topped off and they can't put one more drop in it. Um, but we can make a big difference everywhere we are. Driving down the road, we have the opportunity to get pissed at the person who cuts us off in traffic or to give them a smile and a wave or just let it, let it go. We have an opportunity with the cashier at the grocery store who may or may not be having a bad day. Um, just this weekend, I was up in Estes and I was going through a store and I recognized the song. And I was like, is this Cosmo Sheldrake? And the, the gal at the, at the cash register is like, oh my God, you know who this is? I, everybody's like, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? I can't believe you're the first person in months that has actually known who this is. And just that little interaction made her day. Like we have such an opportunity with every single interaction with every person that we come in contact with to help them have a little bit brighter of a day. Uh, we don't have to start a nonprofit and we don't have to dedicate our lives volunteering 60 hours a week like like some of us do uh, to to really <laughs> to really have a big impact in the world it, you know those little ripple effects you know maybe that person at the the store up in Estes was having a crummy day before I came in and if I hadn't had that interaction and made that person laugh uh, who knows how the rest of that person's day may have gone. And because I had that impact and made her laugh, who knows how the rest of the day and every interaction with every other person that she had and that she came in contact with and how the ripple effects from that uh, 
butterfly affected throughout the entire world. You know, you don't really know. Um, it's also important to realize that we do have something to contribute, that each of us has a unique gift and there's something that we can do, whether it's just a sense of humor or a compassionate ear or an insight or whatever our gift might be, um, just to realize and validate that we do have something. Everybody has something. If there wasn't something unique and special about you, then you wouldn't exist. So just those two realizations, I think, are, are really important to, to start with. Oh, I love those examples, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. And and the, the beauty of the examples is that we don't even need to go that far, right? If you live with somebody, if you have an intimate partner, spouse, parents, siblings... You know, it, it appalls me that sometimes it is the people that we're closest with that we treat the worst. Sometimes? <laughs> Most of the time? Almost. Right? Is the people that we're closest with that we take for granted. Our most loyal employee, our, you know, longest standing partner. And so to me, it starts just with you being able to decide so decide ahead of time how you want to show up and then practice it practice it with the people that are right there in front of you that you are sharing space that you are interacting with on a daily basis because that will make a huge ripple effect so one of my um good friends at the counseling center, Mark Ben, he used to say, he used to have this phrase, shit in, shit out. Mm. And, um, and I didn't really understand it, you know, and he's like, well, you know, if there's somebody that is at work and they're constantly being um, belittled and they are constantly being yelled at, they are mar- marginalized, discriminated on, um, and just treated poorly that that man let's say it's a man that man will come home and then will like take it out on his wife and he will be mean to her he will beat her up and then she will take it out on the kids and then the kids will then get punished will get yelled at and then the kid will go and kick the dog or go to school the next day and, and- be a jerk to one of their classmates or become a bully and then that kid goes home and acts out at home and then they gives their parents an awful night and then the parents have an awful night and then they go to work and they yell at somebody else there was an episode i think in uh how i met your mother or something like that and they talked about the cycle of screaming or cycle of yelling or something like that and it was all about that it's hilarious yeah but but i mean so if you think about how this ripple effect of negativity shit in shit out right then I thought about okay well can I become the transformer of shit a shit alchemist a shit alchemist (laughs) you're gonna turn poop into gold (laughs) can we become shit alchemists can we decide that even if somebody is shitty that you get to transform that you know, so because in the end, 
perception is all interpretation, right? It's all in the interpretation. It's all in the stories. So you were talking about the guy that is cutting you off in traffic. You know that that used to be a thing for me. That used to be me too. Big trigger for me, and I would get mad, and I would start yelling. And if I had somebody in my car, then like that person was now like, oh my god, you know. I may or may not have had a severe problem with road rage in my twenties. <laughs> so that was a thing for me, and then all of a sudden, you know that that I mean, and this is kind of going all directions, but you know that Fantasia episode where like Goofy is like like the most peaceful, loving individual, and he's like not even like stepping on bugs, and he's like just the kindest like. And then gets in his car and then becomes like, <laughs> like, like Mr. Mr. Hyde, you know, and just like, it's like awful and mean. That, that was kind of a little bit me, you know. And so uh, I recognized that and it was literally people that would cut me off and then would be like weaving through traffic and all of that. That would just really get to me. And finally, I'm like, you know, it doesn't matter. Like me getting mad, me yelling. Like, that person doesn't ever get to hear it. It's just impacting me and the poor people that are my passengers, right? And victims. The, the, the poor victims of my road rage. And then eventually I was like, so why am I allowing, right? Like, this is a great example of kind of what we were talking about. Recognizing I was actually being a cause, right? I was allowing somebody else to cause me to feel enraged and then then I would show up and then I was all like in a bad mood to the next thing and so on and so forth you know and I was like why can I take ownership and can I decide that I am gonna show up in a different way so there's this practice that I have um as you know I'm a huge fan of meditation and using meditation as a um as a practice both for focus, for groundedness, and to help you connect and set intentions for your day. Part of that practice involves coming up with three words, three states of being of how you want to show up in the world that day. And then um, allowing my uh, intuition to give me a symbol for each one of those words and a color for each one of those words so that I can feel basically the embodiment of that and then I'll set a reminder on my phone to ping me a few times during the day to remind me and see if I am actually practicing showing up as those things right and so this is just one practice that we can adopt where we are now choosing we are now choosing how we want to be what we want to show up and then when opportunities like somebody cutting you off shows up then you can see that as an opportunity like oh here's a chance for me to choose am I gonna allow this guy to get me all enraged or am I gonna choose to stay in joy for instance and so so I decided to create a story and I'm gonna share with you and maybe our listeners will get a kick out of it most my leadership teams always laugh um I created, I have created the story that every time that somebody's cutting me off and just weaving in and out of traffic, I tell myself, oh my gosh, that person must really need to poop. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good story. Bad visual. Good story. 
It always makes me laugh. It always makes other people laugh. So in the end, the end result is way better. Yeah, I think most of the time we get upset because of the association that we tie to something. For example, road rage. For whatever reason, in this culture predominantly, and I've traveled all over the world and most of the other places that I've been to, at least the developing countries, they don't respond the way that we do. But when we get pulled over here, it's like we go inside and we internalize it and we think that that person did it intentionally and they have no respect for our lives and that they know that we're trying to get somewhere on purpose, on time, and they're intentionally cutting us off and they're intentionally slowing us down and impeding the direction of our life. They're intentionally putting us at risk. And we have this perception that everything is personal. And I remember, it's, I think it was Jim Rohn. I, I mentioned this in my last podcast, the Effed Up podcast that I just did for Patreon, that our lives are ruined pre- predominantly by the way we think things are. Absolutely. It's not the way things are that affects us. It's the way that we think things are that affect us most. It really depicts that it's our perception of reality, not reality itself, that has the b- biggest determining factor in in the outcome of any situation whether it's road rage or a conversation with our boss or a spouse let's touch on perspective for a second because this really ties in i think particularly with the conscious leadership Mm -hmm. thing and a lot of the challenges and struggles that we face as a society as a society (laughs) i feel like that that segment in um fun with dick and jane <laughs> what what are your statistics <laughs> please tell me your statistics <laughs> i didn't know that my less fame was contagious <laughs> <clears throat> i just got a fat tongue <clears throat> so perspective so um i absolutely love that you you are bringing this up because as i mentioned of course perspective uh, perception is interpretation and really um, you know, you talked about how we perceive uh, it, the policeman pulling us over. And I'm like, it. we don't need to go that far. You know, I work a lot with um, what I call power couples, right? Like couples that are both very... Um, either but both business owners, both leaders, both very power couples. And um, type A couples? Well, they can be type A or not. Um, and it's fascinating that whenever we feel hurt or wounded, so many couples take it personally, right? Like this is a person that you have chosen to spend your lifetime with. This is a person that you have chosen to be your partner. And the first moment that they have a faux pas or they, you know, have an emotional reaction or they showed up not as their best self, immediately, most people take it personally. And so just like you said, I think that there's two main things that cause a lot of problems. One is expectation the expectations that we have and that we put on others. Particularly those that we love and we believe love us. A hundred percent, both expressed and unexpressed. Um, And then two, 
the fact that we think that everything's about us and we take everything personally. And so if we could learn to interpret things as everything is neutral and then we are simply giving it an interpretation based on our own filter, that it's based on our own wounds, then we could say, huh, I'm feeling triggered. It's less about that person and it's a lot about me. Right? So coming back to that same place. Now, perspective is difficult to take if we cannot step outside of our own filter and if we cannot step outside of our own shoes, which is part of the reason why I love the practice of meditation and mindfulness because that practice allows us to be able to see something or experience something and and feel it and then be unreactive right like be like oh yeah I'm hungry okay let it go oh right I have to take out the garbage let it go right like oh hmm I'm cold let it go right like so all of a sudden we are not stuck in the cycle of reactivity which is how most of us live our lives and so the moment that we can step out of reacting step out of thinking that everything is about us and taking things personal then we can have the compassion to step outside of our shoes and step into somebody else's shoes and somebody else's experience and then have a different perspective you know um one of the one of the challenges and exercises that i give some of my clients especially when they're very um stuck on you know blaming and sort of this righteous indignation about something you know i'll say come up with five other stories five other stories about why is it that this other person or this thing happened that are either neutral or positive and most people struggle greatly with doing that any story beyond they're an asshole and they're just stupid correct right like oh because sometimes the other person was trying to help them right even though the the effect was not necessarily pleasant right the intention behind it was loving like my christmas gift to you (laughs) (laughs) i don't want to digress now it reminds me a lot of how it was a jack cornfeld um great buddhist teacher he was talking about and he says do not introduce me to him i want to go on hating him and it's really difficult to hate someone once you get to know them <laughs> and it's very similar with the struggles that we have especially with the division in our communities and around the country whether it be political or cultural or whatnot um, taking the time to actually get to know somebody and understand why they believe the way that they believe and why they feel what it is that they're feeling, taking the time to actually get to know somebody rather than immediate casting of judgment and uh, denigration of these people. Um, even if we have to, in our own minds, come up with five stories to help justify in a positive way why somebody would do what they're doing, um, that would be really beneficial. Um, Buddhism is great. Another thing that they talk about is just like me. 
in in the uh, what do they call the compassion meditations Tongolin. yeah um just like me to realize that you know if given the exact same set of circumstances if i lived their life and went through everything that they went through chances are pretty good that i would have a fairly similar paradigm and belief system as as them another thing that's really beneficial from buddhism that i think would help communities today is the independent origination um, or dependent origination that is to say that there is nothing in this world that can exist unto its own there are factory miners in africa that mine the materials to create the cup that you're drinking your coffee from and there were uh, farmers in Colombia that are mining that are harvesting the beans and then there's a roasting company in Portland that like dependent origination is super important to realize that nothing in my world could exist to me on its own I need everybody that's involved in the entire world for this to exist for the life that we have we all need each other and I, I think those are two beneficial or three really beneficial perspectives to have yeah I, I love what you said because this is one of the key skills to develop of being able to move from judgment to curiosity being able to move from I know it all and I have all the answers and I'm right to hmm, maybe I don't know maybe there's things that I don't know and there's more to learn and um, let me find out you know it, it requires actually a great degree of bravery in my opinion to be willing to admit when you don't know something and to move from a space of judgment and self-righteousness to a space of curiosity and wanting to understand and learn more. It's, it's a, like I say many times, it's simple. It's a simple thing to do, but incredibly challenging to practice. <laughs> I'm try yeah, I'm trying to wrap my mind around wanting to understand and being willing to listen to somebody justify a belief that I have come to determine is incredibly ignorant. Mm -hmm. There are lots of situations and lots of topics that I can come up with <laughs> on the top of my head um where this is a poignant topic. Um how do we convince somebody to want to hear somebody justify something that we have determined is based completely in ignorance? You know, um, partly it's about being able to be clear about our role as leaders and catalysts and our ability to influence others we will never be able to influence others if we're not willing to listen understand their model of the world and respect their model of the world you know we each of us i think um this is a very core tenet of uh, many of my nlp studies which is respect each person's model of the world and 
this model of the world is created based on experiences and values, right? And so we tend to judge other people's beliefs and actions based on our own model of the world, based on our own value system. But that is not actually their value system. They have their own, (laughs) right? And so um, when we can step out of the the righteousness of, you know, I have the truth and I know that what I know is true and what they, you know, whatever they believe is wrong. And they should just see it my way. Correct. And if we could say, maybe there's a part, maybe there's a piece of what they have to say that might be true. And I'm willing to be open (laughs) to listen and consider it. Doesn't mean that you are going to change your mind but that you simply have the willingness and the openness to listen and to consider the possibility that they might have something to teach you or that they might have a perspective that might resonate for you. And if you can do so in a respectful manner, right? And you can do so in a way that they feel like you are appreciating and respecting their model of the world, then it allows them to feel seen and validated. And then it allows them ideally to then step into a place where they might be able to listen to you with that same energy. Grace. Absolutely. But when we come into any kind of interaction or conversation with the intention that we are right and I'm going to convince you that I'm right, then I already lost. Because we are in some ways violating the idea that each person gets to choose what feels right for them. And, um, you know, many, many years ago. And that each person's feelings are valid. valid, Regardless of what they're steeped on, right? Um, Many years ago when I started my career as a psychologist, I created a mantra I became, I, I recognized very early on that there was this great danger for me in um, sort of riding the waves of feeling really good about myself when my clients were feel, doing really well and then feeling really shitty when they were doing really crappy and taking ownership for that. And I recognized that um, that would be unhealthy for me and unhealthy for them. And so I created this mantra that said, I cannot make anybody do anything. You know, and I would like literally say it to myself every time I would like drive to my office, I cannot make anybody do anything. Um, And to simply be able to be in a place of all I can do is provide a, a safe space for people to be able to express how they feel. And I can provide a different perspective. I can help them consider different viewpoints, different opportunities, and ultimately allow them to make the decision that feels best for them, whether I agree with it or not. Um, You know, it's irrelevant. And so that ultimately people, you know, I think for me, it's really being able to keep present both as a a leadership coach and high performance is that in the end, People are responsible for their results. We are each only responsible for ourselves, 
right? And so recognizing that, yeah, we can have great power and great influence and most likely people are going to be more open to receiving that perspective or to be influenced by us when they feel heard and respected. And validated. 100%. A long time ago, I decided that my role, my job on my time, in my time on this planet was to plant a seed or water one. Mm. Early on, I was really attached to planting the seed, watering it, watching it germinate, sprout, grow, and bear fruit within the 10 minutes of that particular conversation. <laughs> and I realized that that wasn't always lucrative or possible. So finally, I arrived at the decision that my job in this plane, in my existence, is to plant seeds and water them. And the only thing that I have control over is what kinds of seeds I plant and with what do I water and fertilize that seed. I can plant the seeds of hate and ignorance. I can water it with urine and lie or I can plant the seeds of hope and optimism and empowerment and water it with water and nitrogen and try to hope that maybe someday it will grow. And uh, Dennis Waitley, who you probably know, the high-performance coach and psychologist, also um, says, I want to plant shade trees under which I'll never sit. <laughs> my job is to, my role in this plane is to plant a seed or water it. And it sounds exactly like what you're talking about. Absolutely. I, I, so, you know, of course, you and I have talked a lot about the serendipity of um, our connection and our friendship. And you saying that just kind of helps me reaffirm, you know, why we're such good friends. Um, many, many years ago when I um, got divorced the first time, I read a a book that was really transformative and the most transformative part of it was a poem that became sort of a little bit of a um, manifesto for me. I have now my own, but this was a, a guiding, um, yeah, a, a guiding manifesto for me. And so I'm going to read it to you because I think that you're going to resonate with the planting seeds. Great. So it's, um, the poem is, and the book is by Donna Markova, and it's called, I Will Not Die an Unlived Life. <laughs> I literally just read this yesterday. Did you? That's so freaking funny. This is awesome. <laughs> this is how life works in synchronicity. I will not die an unlived life. I will not live in fear of falling or catching fire. I choose to inhabit my days, to allow my living to open me, to make me less afraid, more accessible, until it becomes a wing, a torch, a promise. I choose to risk my significance, to live so that which came to me as seed goes to the next as blossom, and that which came to me as blossom goes on as fruit. Check this shit out. Screenshot from, <laughs> it wasn't yesterday, it was Monday. That is so funny. Weird, eerie, awesome, and funny. <laughs> but clearly, this was a message that we needed to share with the community because, you know, and I think that it really depicts um, the essence of what we believe that we are here to do and really what, what I believe many of us are here to do, right? That if we can 
take that seed and help it become blossom and then we can take that blossom and help it become fruit and help to advance and enhance the life of every person that we come into contact with in any kind of shape or form and if that is our orientation and if we can truly adopt that orientation day in and day out our world would become a totally different world and we wouldn't need to rely on government for anything. My intuition is telling me that this is a beautiful and serendipitous place to wrap this up. I can't think of a better way or a better message to send people off with than that. I love you so much. Thank you so much for this conversation. I really hope that everything that we had an opportunity to talk about resonates with the hearts of our listeners is there anything that you would like to share in closing no i just feel so honored that we got to do this and that we got to co-create in the way that we do and um that we continue to bring our love and our gifts into the world and encourage people to do that because um i guess the one thing that i do want to say is really help remind each of our listeners how much power we each have to create the lives that we want and to make a significant difference in other people's lives, even if it's just a smile. Yeah. Everything matters. Absolutely. Will you please tell our listeners, and this will be in our show notes, but please tell our listeners how to find you, your socials and uh, website and whatnot. Please share. Yeah. Um, my website is synapsecounseling.com. That's one of them. And my other one is Intuitive Business Mastery. In that one, I have a bunch of gifts that people can download um, and access all kinds of uh, free resources. And all of these will, again, be in the show notes below. So please check there for Elena's contact information and the gifts that she's going to offer. Mm-hmm. And they can find both those uh businesses on Facebook and also Dr. Elena Estenal on Facebook pages. Perfect. I hope that you have a wonderful day. I hope that everybody listening has been empowered and can traverse the next week at least with this incredible energy that I feel right now. Thank you. and love you all. Have a wonderful day. Take care. See, what did I tell you? That was one fantastic conversation, wasn't it? Chock full of incredible insights and wisdom and inspiration. And I hope that something in that whole thing really sparked a flame inside your soul and that you're ready to go out and be an inspired leader. Um, Before we close out here, once again, I want to send a shout out and a thank you to all of the businesses that chose to go above and beyond and support our silent auction for this month. We have Pino's Palette, Painting with a Twist, Studio Vino, Haley Hassler, um, Rosetta, the Bronze Sculptor. She's phenomenal. Global Village Museum, Loveland Art Museum, Artisan U, Daggett Glass Studios, Colorado Symphony Orchestra, Winter Fest and Off the Hook Arts, Rialto Theater, Loveland Museum, Rich Helzer, Michaela Kiernan, Glassy Mermaid, and Black Sand Glass. 
thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. Once again, thank you for your support and helping the world empowered to help more people. I hope that you have a wonderful day and we'll talk to you again soon. Take care.